How's it going, everybody? On this episode, I'm going to be talking with Chris Jenkins. I started following Chris on Instagram probably two years ago and been really interested in everything that he's doing. He travels around a lot to hunt, but he mostly hunts around where he lives in the mountains of Georgia. As you guys probably know at this point, I'm super interested in mountain hunting and hunting in hills and big timber and just the woodsmanship that comes along with that. So I'm excited to talk with Chris about his style and what he's learned from hunting the mountains and hopefully we can learn from him as well. I am in Ben's apartment recording right now so he's not the only person that lives in this building. You may hear some weird noises, kids screaming, crying, stuff like that. Honestly, you probably won't notice it anyway, but other than that, audio should be great. Before we get started, I wanted to remind you guys that we've partnered with the social media platform Go Wild to combat mainstream social media's censorship. Go Wild is a free social community where not only are your photos not censored, they're encouraged. Go Wild gives you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. As you earn points, you unlock awesome rewards too, such as gift cards, free swag, knives, huge discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex, and if you create a free account, you can unlock $10 just for trying it out. If you also want to save 10% off of their store, you can use our code THP, and all you got to do is visit DownloadGoWild.com to get started. I guess to start, tell me more about you, where you grew up. Kind of, you mentioned Georgia, the Northeast, Colorado. Tell me more about all that stuff and just kind of paint a picture of your hunting situation, I suppose. Yeah. So, so I grew up in uh, New England, up in the, the Northeast. And, you know, I grew up real kind of like outdoors lifestyle. You know, I, you know, my, not so much my father, but, but my grandfather, my uncles were all, really big into hunting. And so I was introduced to it at a, at a relatively young age. And that was mostly deer hunting, uh, you know, snow tracking, uh, you know, a lot of squirrel hunting, just kind of anything and everything we could get out and do. Uh, and, and so that was a good kind of introduction for me. And then, you know, high school hit and it's a pretty common story, but, uh, my priorities, uh, changed late in high school and college. And I ended up, uh, you know, chasing women and (laughs) (laughs) kegs of beer, uh, for many years. But, um, but then I, uh, I found my, what's become my passion in life just in general is wildlife. And, you know, so I do for a living and I found that major and it just all came uh, rushing back to me. And I started hunting again uh, in college and, you know, started studying wildlife management, biology, and uh, just kind of dove headlong into it. And then I ended up, uh, you know, so I can, you know, my college career was also in New England, my my bachelor's and my master's degree you know, worked there. And then I ended up going out West to do my PhD. And uh, I ended up going uh, to Idaho. And I mean, that just, you know, it was just an open book. Just, I was just sucking in everything, elk hunting, mule deer hunting, upland bird hunting, waterfowl. It was, it was, you know, fly fishing. It was just kind of a, a year round, uh, endeavor. And, uh, you know, I think I mentioned to you last time we talked, you know, I bought a, a lifetime license, which in Idaho, which is one of the best investments I ever made, especially yeah. given how hard tags are getting to, to draw in the West. So, 
you know, so I still, I go back to the West most every year, spend a lot of time in Idaho in particular, but, you know, other states as well. And uh, then about, uh, I should say that I finished my PhD and I was working for what people would best know as the Bronx Zoo, uh, but it's an organization called Wildlife Conservation Society. They work all around the world on you know, wildlife conservation issues. And uh, I was working in Yellowstone <clears throat> ecosystem, working on a whole variety of species, you know, things such as sage grouse and pygmy rabbits and uh, elk and pronghorn and uh, snakes. I'm a snake fanatic. Uh, I've, and, I've recognized that actually. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, uh, so anyways, but then I ended up coming to the Southeast. I ended up uh, leaving WCS and creating a new nonprofit uh, called the Orian Society. And uh, we created that. And I've been living in uh, the Southern Appalachian region now for 13, 14 years. And uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up here. And then I, I won't go in depth, but just kind of tell you that I, the way I've always viewed my hunting wherever I live is I kind of, I'm always categorizing things. It's just how my mind works. And so I, I always have this thing. It's a book I read a long time ago titled Hunting from Home. And so I've always tried to master master is the wrong word, you know, really invest my time and, and, and try to become somewhat accomplished wherever I'm living. And then I love adventure hunting as well. So mm -hmm. I travel quite a bit. So uh, point being when I got to these Southern Appalachian mountains, I just, I mean, I've just dove in and uh, you know, that's where I am today. Just loving living in these mountains and spending, you know, as much of every day as I can out in them. So what do you see being the biggest difference between the area that you grew up? Because that's a mountainous region of Appalachia, just the complete opposite side of it. What is the biggest difference between that and where you're living now? For, from a hunting standpoint, I yeah, suppose. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, there are some major differences. One, uh, it, it's very rare that we get. Uh, that we get snow during the hunting season here. Mm -hmm. And I love uh, snow track. And I think you've been getting into it recently. Mm -hmm. It's one of my favorite things to do, but that's very rare. It happens on occasion. Um, but the other thing is that it's actually much bigger mountains here. I mean, most people don't think of this, but the biggest mountains east of the Mississippi are the Southern Appalachians. So, you know, I think let's just, I don't remember the numbers, but say there's 30, mountains east of mississippi over six thousand foot elevation like 28 of them are in like north carolina virginia tennessee so um so anyways uh the mountains are much bigger and the forest is is quite a bit different um as compared to new england i mean it'd probably be similar to places you know like where you are in ohio or northern virginia even pennsylvania but it's it's really a hardwood dominated system here and there's some pines um but up in new england it it was kind of that transition from the hardwoods to the boreal forest so the, the forest itself is quite different the terrain while both mountainous the terrain here is just much steeper um much higher and then one last component i'll mention it's a real difference it, and it, it's really important when it, it comes into hunting mountain deer is that uh, down here, 
the these rhododendron thickets, or we call them rhododendron hells, uh, <laughs> and, and Mount Laurel. But down here, it's really more so rhododendron as you get into the high mountains. Um, I mean, there's a lot of it, and you can have entire mountainsides covered in it. You know, I'm talking hundreds and hundreds of acres, and um, so yeah, it's a it's an interesting place down here. You you have open hardwoods and then almost as thick as you can get. Yeah, and it's I always say that thick is relative to what your ex- experience is. Yeah, but good point. I've been in that stuff, and it is a different type of thick. It's hard to navigate through because it's not like it's stemmy just going straight up and down necessarily it's just got stuff going every which direction therefore maneuvering your body through it is more challenging than other types of thick and you know everybody's got their version of what thick is but you know it varies so much but that stuff's definitely a pain i've been in a fair amount of it turkey hunting and a little bit deer hunting and it's it definitely does create a different um atmosphere in the mountains for sure. And I want to, I want to touch on more of that and I'm sure we will. Um, but you mentioned steeper in the terrain difference. That's something that I've noticed as well. It seems like a lot of the Southern States and the bigger mountains that I've been in Turkey hunting, there's just way more terrain in general and, and compared to a lot of the stuff that I have either been in in the northeast or have even just looked at on the map there's definitely different tendencies like i always look at things um shape wise i guess when i'm looking at a topo map and as far as like a shape goes it seems like the northeast has a lot of just knobs more or less mm-hmm. and and can have some i guess finger ridges and stuff but as you move further south in that range there's definitely just more fingers coming off of like those knobs and those bigger ridges. And that's something that I guess not having a ton of experience in either place, pretty limited, but having been in both, that's something that I've noticed is just the terrain is, is it's, I almost think of it as being weirder up in the Northeast just because I don't see a lot of places like that. But down South, Mm -hmm. it's like a bigger scale of, what you can find in a lot of different areas, I suppose. But that's just one observation that I've made. Yeah, I would agree with that. And there are places in the Northeast like uh, that would be similar, say like the high peaks, the Adirondacks mm-hmm. or, um, you know, or the White Mountains in New Hampshire. Um, but you have to think that up there, those mountains were glaciated. And so you had giant walls of ice, you know, or even where you are in Ohio, like parts mm-hmm. of Ohio, like these, these giant walls of ice were ripping apart those landscapes. You know, we weren't glaciated here. So everything is, uh, everything is essentially erosion over time. I mean, I'm sure there are earthquakes and all these things, but so the other thing you end up with, that's much different. And I didn't mention this was, you know, if you go up and you're hunting New York or Maine or wherever, you're going to constantly be kind of in and out of these bogs and wetlands and lakes and all of that. And, you know, a lot of that terrain was created by these glaciers a long time ago. Mm-hmm. We don't have that down here. I mean, every, almost all of our water are creeks or rivers. It's just these river systems that flow off steep mountains. Um, and typically, if you have a lake or a wetland, 
um, it's one of two things, either a beaver made it on a small Creek, which is pretty rare because beaver are mostly gone or it's man-made. All of our lakes are truly reservoirs. So um, water is a lot different in a sense too, but there is a lot of water. It's like a, a rainforest here, a temperate rainforest. The County I live in, uh, you know, we get over 80 inches of rain a year. So, <laughs> yeah. So probably this time of the year, you're getting a lot of rain. Yeah. Winter time. We definitely is one of the times. I mean, it can happen any time of year, but winter is definitely one of the hot spots. Usually when the deer hunting uh, is really good and we can talk about, you know, the kind of the different stages, the timing of ruts and all of that. But usually when, when the deer hunting is really good, there's often a lot of rain, which is, which is good and bad, yeah. you know? So, Oh yeah. I mean, it's good for conditions, but for you, but then it's also like the thing that, the thing that, I mean, there's pros and cons to it. For one, for me, filming things becomes a real issue when it's pouring rain all the time. But that aside, if that's not a factor, I mean, obviously just comfort is one thing. And then uh, the other thing is, is I do really enjoy listening in a big woods setting. Like I really like listening. And when you take that away, that's just one advantage that if you know how to use it, and I tend to use, I, I feel like I almost tend to like that more than conditions that allow me to be quiet. I guess it, it depends on the situation for sure. If I know where deer are, I want to be able to hear. But if I'm yeah. trying to cover ground and find something new or learn something new, I guess it's better to have the wet. But but anyway. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree with that. That's like, I would almost say that it's more exciting to say, be sitting on a little mountain ridge, little, you know, secondary ridge or whatever, and just hear a deer coming from a couple hundred yards away. Um, as opposed to all of a sudden them appearing. I mean, it's all exciting. Don't get me wrong, but yeah. I love that sound. <laughs> well, and it's like, it's like, uh, it, it allows that anticipation to build so much that it makes the moment so much more intense. Like when I can hear one coming even if I can't see it, you know, until the very last second, it's like builds and builds and builds. And in your head, you're thinking big buck, big buck, big buck. And then, you know, it's, it may or may not be a lot of times isn't, but just that the man, the way my heart will get beaten when I'm listening to something come in is pretty much about as crazy as it gets as far as that goes. Because when you don't know, you can just make up what you want it to be in your head. Exactly. So I guess, tell me then a little bit about like the different stages of the season and like how you start your year, even from, if you even want to go into a scouting, like plan and any of that type of stuff too. I'm, I'm, I know I have questions within that, but I'd like to, Mm -hmm. like to kind of hear your progression of things and and how it kind of looks for you just being in, Mm -hmm. you know, that Southern region. Yeah. So first thing I'll say is I live in the state of Georgia, but, but really the, you know, what I'm kind of speaking to today is like North Georgia, Western North Carolina, East Tennessee, and kind of uh, extreme uh, Southwestern Virginia, which would really be kind of be like the Southern Blue Ridge uh, eco region. And so, but if I go to Georgia where I live, just to give you an idea of, 
deer and breeding. I mean, you're probably aware of this or other Southern states like this, but you know, the rut is incredibly complex, meaning it's not just, oh, the rut's generally the first week of November. It might be a few days later in another part of the state. I mean, you can, we have a long season, starts in mid-September with archery, opens usually like third week of October. We'll go to a week of muzzleloader, and then it goes rifle, and rifle goes to mid-January. So still, I've been hunting deer since September, and it's still open. And so, uh, and, um, but within that window of September to January, if you wanted to bounce around the state of Georgia, you could literally be hunting deer in the peak rut somewhere from September to January. And so, and, and it doesn't, there's not like a, uh, a pattern to it, meaning, you know, it's not like a, just a north-south gradient or an east-west. It all has to do with, um, you know, when the deer were were reestablished and where those deer came from. You know, a lot of deer came from places like Texas, for mm-hmm. example. And um, so, but he, up here in the mountains, and this is true for, you know, as you get up into North Carolina, your rut is going to be relatively late as compared to what people think of white tails in most of the country. So, you know, I like to say in this part of the world, if I had to pick like not necessarily my favorite week to hunt, but a peak rut week would be the first week of December. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, the the way my season goes, I won't, I'll just kind of give you a quick overview. And if you want to get in more depth. Mm -hmm. Um, So what I do, we also have really good um, bear hunting and I really enjoy bear hunting. And so when the season opens with archery, um, uh, well, let me back up and say that in general, um, bear hunting is at its best when the season opens. So in September, the bear and the deer perfectly overlap. So you can hunt bear the entire time with the same weapons. And so uh, bear hunting is best early, like right when the season opens, and then it gets progressively um, worse throughout the season. I mean, you can kill a bear in December or January here, um, or you can kill a whitetail in September, <clears throat> but whitetail hunting is really, really hard early season here. Um, and we can get into the reasons for that. But um, so you have bears good early hunting just as a general metric getting worse and you have deer hunting worse early in the season and then getting better as you go. So what I do, I, when I'm archery hunting, I'm hunting bears mm-hmm. and um, I, I do two things there. You know, I'm, I'm focused on bears, but bear hunting with a bow here means covering a lot of ground. Um, and so uh, in the process of that, I'm doing a fair amount of scouting for my upcoming focus on the deer. But I mean, you know, I'm hunting bears. If I'm getting into bear sign, you know, I'm, I'm hunting bears using the, the techniques that he's there. Um, so anyways, I'm hunting bears, archery, and then I'm hunting bears through muzzleloader and even into the very beginning of rifle. And then um, I'll usually take, you know, a week or so in the beginning of November and go down to South Georgia and hunt what people would typically think of as Georgia hunting. Um, you know, I'll hunt some of that down when those deer are rutting. And then <clears throat> I come back from that and I am all in on mountain deer hunting. So basically you can think of, you know, say early November 
through January, um, I'm focused on that and, and I'm doing a fair amount of scouting, but you know, to be fair, it's, it's while I'm bear hunting Mm -hmm. prior to that. So would you say the majority of your scouting then is in season scouting? Are you doing much in the off season at all? Well, I'm doing that too. So, but I would call that in the mountains here, I would call that early season when I'm bear hunting, I would call that, I wouldn't call that in season scouting, even though I could technically shoot a deer. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, so let me back up and, and say the other thing about these mountains is, you know, anybody listening to this, the, I've hunted whitetails in, in a lot of places, probably not as many as you, but you know, I've I hunt a lot all over the country. And uh, this is the high peaks of the Southern Appalachians, I think is, I won't say the, but it is one of the hardest places to kill a mature whitetail. Um, and that's because, I mean, the first reason is that the deer densities are really, really low. I mean, you think of them being low in New England, um, and they are, um, and, but they are really low here and people think of georgia and they think of this like deer hunting mecca deer factory and it is but there's this strip at the northern part which couldn't be more different incredibly low deer densities and so what that means early season you couple that with a million acres of national forest wilderness areas wild and scenic rivers uh just a really wild landscape um you know you can be you could have beautiful bedding habitat in every direction. And you could literally not have, you know, the deer could be grouped up. They could literally not have a mature buck miles from you. So it's, um, whereas at that time of year, the bear hunting is very good. So when I'm doing that bear hunting and I'm doing that out of season scouting, I'm actually scouting last year's sign Mm -hmm. is is what I'm looking for. And um, I'll say the, I do a lot of things, but the most important thing when it comes to the deer hunting and the the bear hunting scouting links into this is that because the, because the, uh, the densities are so low, you don't go out and see deer sign. Like it's just not everywhere in the woods. It's barely anywhere. And so, you know, I, I hunt South Georgia, like I said, and I go there and you'll have different intensities and I'm sure it's probably similar in Iowa, but there is some deer sign everywhere, but I can go out um, in these mountains, especially in the higher peaks regions. And, you know, I can do really intense days. I'm talking hiking five, 10 miles and, and not see anything, you know, even when the deer are laying down sign. Um, and, and so what I call them are, are buck pockets. And when you find a big mature buck, you know, you, you'd find sign that that buck's making and, you know, it would be, you know, the same type of big buck sign you might be looking for anywhere. Mm-hmm. I really, I really like tracks, but obviously, you know, really examining rubs and scrapes and, and all of that. But your, uh, but it, it, the point is it doesn't exist everywhere. It's very limited and you have to go find it before you even, I mean, you're hunting, but before you even start thinking about like the, the details of how you might kill a deer, if you go into the woods here and just go sit in a tree, you could kill a deer, but like, 
you're not even hunting in my mind. Like yeah. you have to, you know, you burn a ton of boot leather and you find these buck pockets and, and then I begin hunting them. And, um, the reason I look for previous years is that they certainly, they will be in different places year to year, potentially even the same buck. But, um, but there are places where that are just kind of hot spots that are always used. And last thing I'll say, cause and I'm going on about this is, you know, people are listening to like, Oh, he's going to look for a buck sign. You know, that's, that's very novel. Right. And it's, but it's, I can't stress how, isolated and how little it is. And when you find one of these pockets, it's very apparent. You find a lot of sign, you find big sign, and otherwise you're just in a, just an ocean of negative habitat. It's not even like you're seeing little rubs often, you know? So, yeah. So you got to find those. That's step one. I think that's a great point though, because again, like there's all this on the other hand that, you know, you say you say that people listening may be thinking, oh, he's looking for buck sign. But there's also, on the other hand, a lot of info out there saying, you know, find a spot and sit tight and don't do too much because you might blow them. And like that, that's so relative. And I just think that there's so much more of the country that is like what you're talking about. While it may not be at that ex- extreme there's still so much, especially when you're hunting public land or you're hunting uh, big woods or, you know, areas where there's not these like concentrated areas of, of deer. Like, in, in for example, if you were going to hunt in the, the, the Midwest, like Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, for example, you're, you're finding these areas where deer are coming from a bedding pocket and going to a destination food source. And if that's the case, you can pretty much observe that from a distance or you can, you know, obviously find that sign in the off season and know, okay, I'm going to go here. Once season opens next year, I'm going to set up here and I'm going to play it safe. And, you know, I'm not going to try to bump too many deer. Where on the other hand, if you're dealing with very few deer, if you don't go find them, they're probably not coming to you, <laughs> you know? And I just think that I try to counter that idea of you know that's so midwestern focused because that's the only place you're you're able to get information or is the only place you're able to get information for a long time and i feel like that's why i like having these conversations is because i know exactly what you're talking about and you can't just you can't just get on a ridge up there and think oh this looks good because what if he never even comes to, what if he you know is like on a completely different mountain. And the only way you're going to find that, like you said, is go find those pockets. Yeah. Um, we, we end up, I say we, there's like a, a small group of us that just really dove into this and I'm sure there are others, but, um, but you know, I end up walking, hiking more than I end up sitting. And that's even once I find these buck pockets and we'll probably get into that and how we, how I hunt them. Um, but I end up walking a lot and people, like if you, if you were to look at me in the deer woods, um, I, I look like I'm going hunting in Colorado. Like I always have a big full pack on, um, you know, I've got, I'm all set up with layers, you know, I'm cutting prepared to cut up anything I get, pack it out. I mean, um, and so it's really a much different style than, you know, 
say hunting in South Georgia, I'm assuming a lot of hunting in some of the places you mentioned in the Midwest, mm-hmm. but it's a, yeah, it's almost has like a, it's like a hybrid feel between, you know, what a lot of people think of whitetail hunting and then Western hunting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think that, um, I mean, you are dealing with mountains and they're, and there's something too, like, it's interesting. This is something that's interesting. This is kind of maybe a side tangent, but I find it so interesting, the appeal to go hunt mule deer and elk and, you know, bears out West. But then you start talking to a lot of people that, you know, kind of live in the Appalachians and they're like, oh, it just sucks here. It's like, man, you've got the whole, like, you've got so much adventure right out your back door. And like, honestly, I'm jealous of that. And that's why, that's why i started dabbling in the tracking in the Northeast or down in Georgia hunting down there. And like those, some of those, you know, all these places, I have a long list of places still that I'd like to go check out and try because there's just so much adventure involved in that. And and that to me is appealing. So when you say, you know, you have the the pack and you're covering ground and like you, you mentioned bear hunting with a bow in early season means covering ground. It's like that, that sounds like the dream hunting to me. Like if you could just say, Hey Zach, just go take off walking and cover ground until you start to find some sign. Like that's ideal for me. So, but Mm -hmm. I know that's not for everybody, but anyway, that's my Mm -hmm. little side tangent. But when you, when you're looking for these buck pockets, is there anything that you're doing like on a map beforehand? Are you picking out like target areas and going to them or what does that uh, mm-hmm. look well, like? Typically, you know, these pockets can, you know, they vary obviously, but they're, you know, when you find a place where a big buck is living here, usually you're going to find a pocket that covers, you know, acres and acres uh, of land, as you might imagine. But again, it, it's pretty distinct and and so what I'll typically do with with maps ahead of time is I will kind of pick large routes, almost like a lot of the the snow trackers would do up north. And uh, you know, and I'm I'm typically not hunting a particular buck. Sometimes I end up doing that because you're you're hunting this one pocket and there's probably only one mature buck in there. But but it's not. I don't use trail cameras. I don't do anything like that. I just completely read the woods. And, and so I, I do a loop. How kind do you of ever like a get lo- them? <laughs> <I'm just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any corn. I don't have any. Yeah. How do you um, ever get one? <laughs> nothing wrong with corn. I've shot plenty of hogs over corn, but, um, but yeah, I'll do loops. Like a lot of the snow trackers do. I'll kind of pick a route and certainly you know, I'll look at that, that route. And, and I think a lot about terrain. I think about these secondary ridges and I'm taking the wind into, you know, the, the prevailing wind. And I'll look at different features like, Oh, that might look, looks kind of like a thermal hub or whatever it might be. And I'll kind of jout, uh, um, jot down a general route in my head and then I'll set out and I'll, I'll walk this big route. Um, inevitably I do end up walking a lot of habitat that I typically wouldn't uh, kill the deer in, mm-hmm. um, meaning like, uh, y- you know, you can kill a deer on a, a ridge top here in particular, if there's another feature, you know, some type of secondary ridge coming into a gap or, you know, all those types of things you hear about, but in general, you're not going to kill, uh, a, a big mature buck and an open hardwood ridge It's it happens, but it's not going to be 
common. And so, but those are the easiest place to access. And you'll definitely, when you get into these pockets, you'll often see a lot of sign on those. Mm-hmm. And so I will often, you know, be walking a lot of places that I wouldn't normally put a lot of energy into hunting, but I'm just trying to identify this place. And then when I find what I think is the beginning of a, of a good pocket, um, I, then I really begin sussing, sussing it out. And, you know, I'm hiking, I'm, I'm looking at the landscape on maps and I'm looking at every little feature that might be in there. I'm looking at where all the rhododendron cover is, where the, the steep slopes are, and I'm covering all that ground too. And, and you know, I map all the terrain, uh, I'm sorry, I map all the sign, um, you know, on my, on my Onyx and, and, and I, I just try to get somewhat of an extent to some degree of where uh, that pocket is. And then, uh, you know, so, so I forgot how that question even started, but, uh, no, I, but yeah, I walk those big routes yeah. basically. So when you're picking a route, you mentioned um, jotting down like notes, you know, in your head as you're going through it, like this might be a little thermal hub or like, I'm assuming you, like if there's rhododendron here, there may be, you know, some sign here and you're kind of picking that as you plan these routes. Um, how much does cover and rhododendron play into that? And is that something that you're able to find easily on a map? Like, are you able to pick out these thick areas or does it take more of a boots on the ground uh, approach to find where those terrain, or I'm sorry, those habitat breaks are? Because for example, the one thing that I often find different when I'm looking at these big mountains, whether it's you know, any, any one of these states that you've mentioned, one of the main differences is from other timber areas that I've hunted is a lack of cutting. So where, not to say that it doesn't happen, and I guess maybe that plays into this as well, but if I'm looking at some of the stuff in the, like definitely in Maine and in New Hampshire, I haven't hunted there yet, but I scouted on a map pretty consistently. I see these just obvious timber cuts where there's like a section like you know maybe it's a 40 maybe it's an 80 maybe it's bigger than that but there's an a section where there's this hard transition line i would assume and i guess based off of limited experience it's pretty hard to find that lower cover that rhododendron mountain laurel type stuff so is that something that you have a little bit of a system for finding on a map or do you get that on the ground so I'll get right to that rhododendron, but I will address what you just said about the forest. Um, and I should back up. And when I was talking about myself, I didn't mention, but I'm, uh, you know, I run this, this nonprofit that does wildlife conservation, but I also serve on the North American board for backcountry hunters and anglers. And, um, you know, I recently put together an Eastern forest management, uh, policy. So it's an organization wide policy where we're trying to get more management in, Appalachian forests. And we have a wide variety of partners. We work with Rough Grouse Society and uh, NDA, um, on and on. And uh, so, but that's, when I talk about these low deer densities, like if you, if you come just focus on Georgia, but it'd be the same in North Carolina or Tennessee, like these mountains used to be the place like in Maine, right? All the people in Maine, they have a camp up in Northern Maine and they go and they just have this great experience. So these mountains used to be like that. It was a hunting destination, but 
there is literally next to no forestry, very little prescribed fire. And, uh, and so the forest is, you know, actually losing biodiversity in a sense. And certainly from a deer perspective, that's largely what's driving the decline in, in deer populations. Um, and I mentioned bears, um, the bears are doing the inverse. The bears have been going up over time. Um, and there was a recent study in this region studying fawns um, and finding that fawn mortality in this region is 90 something percent. And it's mostly, mostly coyotes and bears. And, and then you, you couple that with no cover for fawns and, and on. So that's, first of all, you're spot on with the reason that the deer populations are, are so, uh, so low. Um, and, and you're right. I, I have one, you... I have one question about that. I have one yeah. question and this is, to, I might open up a whole can of worms here, but I guess I personally believe that a lot of hunters opinions seems to be when based off what you just said, well, we just got to kill all the bears and the coyotes. And I, on the other hand, believe that it's, we got to increase the habitat opportunities for the deer and not, you know, and not just leave it completely alone. Because like you said, they don't have any cover, not to say that that managing predators is not important, but that's not the only thing that I hear when you tell me that is I hear, well, there's definitely a lot of predators. So that absolutely needs to be managed, but we're also having a habitat problem. And I just, I don't know. I, I feel like it's a really, really, imp I think it's awesome that you're doing that because it is definitely a misconception that I used to have and is mm -hmm. definitely something that I guess hunters yeah. just throw around like, well, it's the bears. Well, it's coyotes. And it's like, well, that's yeah. maybe a part of it, but there's also a lot more to that. Yeah, it's complex, and I should I should clarify that BHA's policy is not one of oh we need to kill every predator. It's about making the forest healthy again. And without going too deep into that can of worms, <laughs> it, it, historically and prehistorically, these mountains would have had large wildfires, extensive beaver mm -hmm. wetlands, bison, elk, all these things on the landscape that were affecting the forest and made made it so there was young forest, there was middle-aged forest, there was old growth forest. And now we've hit a point where um, due to a variety of reasons, we don't cut anything. So it's all really old forest. So yeah, I mean, we could go to war on the predators, but you're not, that's not making a healthy forest. Mm -hmm. And so like, if you go to like rough grouse society, their big initiative is, is healthy forests. And, and so I completely agree with you. I mean, I, I love hunting bears, but yeah, I'm not saying we just need to go to war on these. We just need to get some early successional habitat into these mountains. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think that's a probably a big problem across a lot of the country in forested areas. It, it seems the as I travel, it's like man, there's a lot of forest that's just getting pretty old. A lot of yeah. places, but anyway, we, yeah. we, we could probably. Maybe that's for a different podcast completely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We could get into the reasoning behind that, but that, that's another can. So back to your rhododendron question and identifying that, you know, remotely, uh, it, it depends. 
sometimes uh, like with the imagery on on X, you can tell um, because it would get a slightly different uh, signature, but it really depends on the timing uh, of the imagery. Mm -hmm. So if you're using an app that, uh, you know, ideally you'd be looking at leaf off imagery because mm -hmm. that rhododendron is just going to light up mm -hmm. green. But sometimes um, I can tell, and a lot of it um, is discovered kind of boots on the ground, but it's hard to, it, it's usually so big that like, you remember meaning like you you know like if you go into a mountain range you know and you're walking down one ridge and then there's like this l ridge that comes off of it and goes up to a big peak you know you kind of remember that layout like rhododendron is often big enough that you kind of rem you remember meaning mm -hmm. like oh like i know that entire side of that mountain's rhododendron mm -hmm. it's not that there's a little patch here and a little patch there although that does happen too so um it's a combination sometimes i can i can see that remotely and sometimes um uh, you know i need to be boots on the ground but you can be assured that in almost everywhere you go in these mountains, it's going to be a component somewhere. Um, and it's usually just a one side of the ridge or the other. Mm -hmm. um, certainly all of these buck pockets I've, I've hunted over the years, you know, it's always a component. It's always, there's some of that within that pocket. It's a really important cover uh, source for the deer. When I hunted Georgia, we saw a consistent trend like you said on one side of a mountain or on one side of the ridge and actually on the the ridge system that we hunted the most the whole the whole north side was really steep and there was all kinds of uh, rhododendron and super super dense bears going in and out of it we actually saw bears um, in there hogs also spending a lot of time in there and then actually on the south side of the mountain it was pretty cool because there was fingers, these really long fingers, and they were all running parallel to each other. And I believe it was like the east, kind of in every valley, but mostly on the east side of those fingers, there was always this band of rhododendron. And right on that like transition, it would be oak forest, just your regular hardwood, I guess, but a lot of oaks and stuff. And they, I, I remember them being oaks because they were dropping acorns. And then on that east side, it was that really dense rhododendron. And you can't see into that stuff. And I think that, I guess when I'm looking at deer habitat across the country, the one thing that's consistent is the places that deer know they're safe and ultimately big bucks end up there is places you can't see into. Where in open hardwoods, like you said, it's rare to shoot a buck in something like that because he knows he's exposed as soon as he walks into that. But as soon as he goes into that rhododendron stuff, you just can't see it into it. So it's like, you're on one of these fingers. You might be a hundred yards from that, you know, other finger with it's rhododendron. But if he can't see in there, you know, he's safe. He wins because he's going to get exactly. you before you get him. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. The only bucks I've killed in the, well, I've killed a lot of bucks in the open hardwoods, but usually in close proximity to, um, you know, to cover, but some on terrain features, um, or, you know, one that, uh, you know, gets caught following a doe yeah. somewhere it shouldn't. So, so I guess what type of terrain are you seeing 
bedding taking place? Because I would assume it takes some sort of dense cover, like the rhododendron, or you have, you have mountain laurel there too. I'm assuming, right? We do, but it's uh, the higher you go, it would be typically less of a component. I'm speaking okay. very general here. And the lower you go, it would be a little bit more of a component. So, um, you know, uh, like where you, down where you guys were hunting, I was expecting that there'd probably be a fair amount of mountain laurel. Mm -hmm. and probably some rhododendron as it well. It was a good mix. Yeah. And then um, up where I do the majority of my hunting, it's going to be primarily rhododendron, but there's mountain laurel as well. Okay. Um, so bedding-wise that is certainly a huge focus and uh, of the deer and uh and it's the primary thick cover because again there's no cutting so you don't have you know unless a deer's down like down by in a valley by a farm and i and i don't want to there's very little farming here it's like the county's like 80 percent public land or mm -hmm. something that i live in and so it's just a lot of woods but uh so the thick cover, but then the other thing you can't, you can't get caught in the trap necessarily of, of thinking only about that because we have so much topography that um, it's not uncommon for deer to actually be sitting out in open hardwoods, but they have a real uh, topographic advantage, you know, and you, you know, for example, uh, I was hunting a mountain ridge a few years ago and um, I was, you know, kind of still hunting or moving slowly through it. And I had the, I was walking down the ridge and the wind was, was coming uh, from my left and I was walking and I looked down the, the side of the ridge on my right. And there was a big mature buck sitting in the open hardwoods, just on a little flat uh, not a bench, just a little flat spot on the side of this incredibly steep staring down, but he had this wind coming over his back. And the moment I saw him, he must've smelled me because his head whipped around and he bounded right into one of these rhododendron thickets, which was pretty close. So, um, so, but my point being, they will certainly use uh, terrain features at times too, that, that give them, advantages say from like a wind and a and a you know vision visual perspective. yeah that's one thing that i've had to relearn a little bit i've been kind of on focusing on this almost exclusively the last couple of weeks is i'm realizing a lot of issues that i've had hunting big woods whether it's the stuff that i hunt in ohio or I just hunted in Indiana. Now those are smaller scale hills, but still, you know, solid stands of timber where you don't have any openings. Um, or like up in the Northeast in New York, the thing that I've realized is, is everything that I've done in my life until recently, until I started diving into these, these timber areas, everything has been hunting deer where they bed in super thick stuff where like there's literally dense cover a foot or less from their face so they can't see anything so when you're hunting that type of stuff you really just have to be quiet and you or sound like a deer if you're going to make noise at least sound like a deer or sound like a turkey or whatever something to fool them and honestly because of that a lot of times if you know how to keep that cadence slow enough you can get super super close to them i'd never 
like until hunting big open timber stands, I'd never bumped a buck from 600 yards away. <laughs> or you know what I mean? Or, or a deer, <laughs> but all of a sudden now you got this open timber and he's laying there looking and he's got that visual advantage. That's just something that was new to me. So yeah. I definitely, uh, have experienced that as well. And I feel like I'm just now when, and I kind of feel stupid because of it, that it's taken me this long to put words to it. But that's, that's the reason I've got so focused on wanting to basically set up to where I'm right on top of where he's bedded. But in reality, that's not always possible. Sometimes it is still, you know, if you're dealing with a clear cut or something that he's laying in that's super dense, but there's a lot of times he's on the edge of that or, you know, just in a place where you can see, like you said, or, or see or smell you and then just bounce and be right into that thick cover and and he's safe again. So, um, you mentioned the flat spot. Um, something that I consistently see hunting deer or turkey hunting and just looking at deer sign is if you're in an area with a lot of terrain change, mountains, hills, it seems like every time you hit a, a knob or a flat spot on the, on the finger ridge or up at the, you know, top of the ridge where it falls off and starts to drop again, it's like any time where there's a flat spot, there's usually a little congregation of beds in that. Is that something that you focus on or, or do you see, I guess I'm assuming you see that same thing where you're at, but do you focus on that or how do you use that? I suppose. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so yeah, I do definitely see uh, deer often bedding on or around little knobs, um, you know, oftentimes say on some of these like secondary ridges that come off of your main ridge line, but could be up on the primary ridge as well. Um, and, you know, I would say it's just all part of, so once I identify that pocket, then I'm, I'm looking, then I'm doing in-season scouting, but I'm mm-hmm. staying in that general area. So even when I'm hunting the deer, I'm oftentimes moving. And so I'll look, I'll look at, you know, on X and look at the terrain. And in that general area, I'll look for, uh, this may be a little bit crude, but I, I call them kill spots where spots that I think I can kill a deer. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm trying to do. Right. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, so I look for say terrain features that would, um, you know, lend towards that. And then, you know, I go in and, and I hunt, I'm still hunting, but I'm, I'm focused in this area now. And I oftentimes move around and really explore that area while I'm hunting. So I'm looking at these terrain features, I'm learning all of that cover. Uh, and, and sometimes I'll go in the cover, you know, so that's another important thing. Like for me, deer season's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Like I don't, Oh, I'm going hunting today. Like, like it's every day. And so I just, you know, I, I don't bumping a deer does not bother me. And so, I, I mean, I might not be right there again tomorrow, but like, you know, I'm like, Oh, that, that was good information. And, and maybe I went into this little thicket and found, found its bed. So anyways, I'm in there, I move around and I kind of identify, you know, I'm really mapping the sign. As I said, I'm uh, trying to identify what I call kill spots and places that I think I can kill this mature deer. And that takes into account everything from, you know, how thermals could be behaving, uh, wind, which is very hard to predict if you're not on the 
top of the primary ridge um, and, you know, terrain features, that cover component we talked about, you know, the, the rhododendron, if, if I have any information on does, because the does also, there are more does than bucks, but, but, you know, they're still also low density. So if I have any of that information and then um, one thing I'll say when I move, uh, it was interesting what you just said. I do the exact same thing. And maybe a lot of people do this, but um, I'll move whether, I mean, I love to move when it's wet because it's quiet, um, but I move when it's loud. And when it's loud here, it's like walking on a bag of potato chips because yeah. it's all hardwoods. <laughs> and so, but I walk like, I, I act like a deer. Like, so, and what I do is I, you know, I, I'm taking you know, three steps, four steps, stop for 10 seconds, you know, and just kind of do that. Try to build a cadence that to me would sound like a deer walking. Um, and so then, I got, I got more questions about that. Cause yeah. I want to hear, I want to hear your style of doing it. Cause I, cause I do the same thing, but certainly we could learn something about, yeah. about it from each other on, on this. Like, is there, is there a way that you step you have a, 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 a tendency, like when you're, when you feel like you're in the hot spot and you're like, man, I really want to sound as much like a deer as possible. And you're really in, in the zone of it. Is there a way that you like put place your foot down? Is there a, and also like, do you have a number or, um, I guess describe that in more detail because because I I have my own version but I'd love to hear yours I really would because not honestly I don't talk to a whole lot of people that that also do it. <laughs> yeah. So the first thing I would say is uh, I learned this from my uncle is if I'm like in the zone like I you know I mean this is it means I think I'm really close or I know that a deer is there and it can hear me and I'm trying to get around this ridge but I'm still trying to go slow because say it's not spook. But if I'm in like as close as you get to knowing that there's a deer right there, I do a walk again that my uncle taught me where I take one step, I kick up, then my back legs behind me. Now I kick that leg up and I tap that toe into the ground. And then I step that forward and then I tap the other one into the ground and then I'll make up, mix up the cadence in that too. I don't want it to be, I'll do stop for a second <laughs> and so um i'll do that but that's walking through the forest like that all day is not oh it's exhausting <laughs> yeah you're not gonna do that all day so but i would say when i'm walking i'm um i'd be really curious to hear how you do it too because you know i i have played around with the concept of trying to like make make my footfall smaller um and, and, you know, like just trying to be on my toes and, and what I've eventually came down to is the most important thing for me, I'm making noise in the leaves, but not to break a lot of big sticks mm -hmm. sticks. So what I do is, you know, I, I typically go with my, you know, I'll come with my heel and kind of like the heel on the side of my foot and it, well, I'll hit with my heel, but then I kind of roll the side of my foot under the ground. And what I'm really doing is like feeling for yeah. sticks uh -huh. and then. Um, and then if I feel something, I change my weight. I'm, I'm trying, basically I'm trying not to break sticks mm -hmm. while I walk and I'm walking relatively softly. I'm walking with a cadence and then I couple that with calling and, and I don't, 
you know, and I match the sound of my call to what I think the volume of my leaves are. Mm -hmm. So I'm not like walking and it's going and then just blasting out these loud grunts because I'm not trying to call in a deer. I'm just trying to disguise myself. So I'll just be making little grunts now and then that again, I think match how loud my footfall is. That's a, that's a really good way to put it. Matching the sound of your call with how much leaf noise you're making. I like that. Because uh, again, I'm not trying to call them in. I just, if a deer can hear my, I'm hoping the deer can't hear me walk. Really. Right. <laughs> but if it can, I want it to also hear that. But mm-hmm. I don't necessarily want it to hear it if it can't hear my feet. If that makes sense. I, I don't think, know if there's, I don't know if that works. I mean, it sounds logical. No, I, I like it. I, I would agree with that. What? So I've killed a lot of deer doing it. Yeah, I think that I have. I think I have the answer for it, but I'm curious. Why is it that your uncle told you to do it that way? What What is that? What is that doing for your disguise? To get you the double footfall. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I do some some things similar. I like I like the double footfall thing, and I, that's yeah, that's a big one for me because when you listen to I, I've. If people were listening to the podcast, they're like, oh, Zach, here goes Zach talking about animal sounds in the woods. But when you listen to animals in leaves, they all sound different. They all have a different sound. Yeah. I'm not saying that I won't still occasionally get like uh, confused with a squirrel, but for the most part, a squirrel's easy. It makes yeah. the same sorts of sounds that popping and just popping right off the top of the leaves, just and it's a lot of times really quick and not necessarily um, evenly spaced or the cadence isn't exactly the same. It's usually just quick or if they're rustling and stuff too versus like uh, a turkey on the other hand just sounds so loud because it's like us. It's got two legs and a lot of times they're scratching and that just kind of like rings through the forest, especially on a dry day. So at first, for example, you might hear a turkey scratching and you can't see it, and you're like, oh, is that a deer? And then all of a sudden, it's like, ah, that's too, and it's consistent. That's the other thing. It's a lot of times, it's just leaves rolling, because usually in the fall or winter, there's more than one turkey, and you're just listening to that, you know, group feeding scene. Um, But then the the deer is the double foot. Exactly. The the thing that I would add to like the calling is just a lot of it is watching video. I can't honestly even say that you observe it all that many times in a season or even in a lifetime. But when you watch videos of deer, it really helps too. Like if you're just watching somebody's video, you know, the one thing I try to take away from stuff that I may not be able to relate to from a a hunting situation, like if I'm watching somebody hunting in, uh, you know, a place that I don't, you know, on private land in a place with that I, I can't really relate to it, I still try to pick up what I can learn from the deer. And I have, uh, I guess I have this like thing too, where if I'm trying to call one in or if I'm, I guess something I, I 
there's these times where it's hard to explain my mentality in these situations, but I'm like, man, there could be a deer there. And honestly, if I call, he may stand up right now and let me know that he's here, especially in the rut. So something that I'll do is I'll be walking like that as I like maybe wrap into uh, wrap around some terrain that, you know, I know my sounds now casting into there, but before I get too far, sometimes I'll, I'll scrape and make like a scraping cadence too, because that's super defined. And I actually think that they do that to let everybody know sometimes, Hey, I'm here now, you know, just that <laughs> hitting the ground real hard with their hooves that whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And then a lot of times they stop kind of look like anybody hear that <laughs> you know and then they get their <laughs> antlers in the trees and kind of mixing that in a little bit too especially if i'm hunting super aggressive and i'm not like i don't want to spend my whole day here but there could be one right in there maybe call and give it 10 minutes and then just keep moving and, and you know basically 99.9 percent .9 of the time it doesn't work but it is one way i feel that you can attempt to not blow something up before you, you know with or you can still have a little hunt there without just moving right to the next thing and then the other thing about stepping i do the same exact thing with my feet trying to make that double sound whether it's kicking a little bit with my back foot or dragging one of them a little bit to kind of get that double foot sound um but then what i do especially if i'm moving If I'm moving fast, I guess I kind of do it all the time when I'm in that, like, I guess danger zone where I feel like I'm close to deer is I tiptoe. And it's something that honestly, when I first started doing, I was like, I got to stop doing this because I was like making my, my lower <laughs> legs exhausted. You know, I was like, this Coming is a to ballerina. Yeah. It's a bad habit that I've started, <laughs> but then my legs eventually, like it took a while, like probably three seasons and but I've been there now for probably two where I don't get tired doing it anymore and it's a weird it's a weird thing I, I would say if anybody's gonna start up and start walking on their tiptoes in the woods like know that it hurts it takes a while to get that strength built up but once I did you know if I want to kind of even make like a a stomp not not necessarily stomping like danger but just you know sometimes deer kind of as they're moving through and they're following each other they're kind of alert you know sometimes they'll hear that like tow, tow. you know if you put your toe tip of your toe in the ground that can kind of mimic that as well but those are just some other little fine details yeah. and situational type things but yeah man i love yeah. that i love that topic and i love those little details like that because that's that's really um i think the type type of stuff that helps take that hunt from just being a walk in the woods where some people are like oh you're just walking around you're just blowing everything up and it's like there's a difference between doing that and and still hunting or sneaking through the forest yeah and uh you know one thing i tell you know the, your listeners too is like it sounds cumbersome. You know, there, there are other things I do too. Like if I break a stick, I typically stop yep. and then I do make another grunt mm -hmm. of trying to, it's probably louder than my walk around, but all, but all this, it seems like tedious. Like if you, if you try it, but like it, it's just second nature. That's just how I move through. You kind of become a deer. Yeah. It's yeah. And I think that's a, it's a, 
yeah, I'm acting like a deer when I'm, <laughs> if I'm in the woods and it's loud, I'm acting like a deer. Yes. Um, uh, you know, if it's real wet and quiet, I'm kind of just moving slow stalking. I still may be uh, making some, some grunting noise as well. I will also sit. I don't, I, ne I never, uh, I mean, if I'm hunting somewhere not in the mountains where it's a big setup property, I mean, I might be in a tree stand, but I don't, I don't own a tree stand. I don't own a saddle. <laughs> um, I hunt from the ground. I do use, um, I have these like tree seats, you know, like that'll, you know, small seat that'll attach to a tree. And there are, there are certain cases where I might, the plan for the day might be to go into one of these kill spots. And I, some days it's sit from dark to dark. So my, my strategies completely change based on so many things. I can't even, you know, it might be what I'm thinking that day, you know, trying to think like that deer, but, um, but I'll, I do that as well. I'll, I'll sit, but it, it, again, I won't just sit in the woods like that. Uh, if, if I don't know where there is some concentration of relatively fresh buck sign, I'm moving, I'm going for a, even if I'm just hiking fast, like I'm, I'm going to look for sign. And so, um, but I will sit, I don't want everybody to think I just move. And then along those lines, uh, people probably laugh, but I do a lot of unconventional things. Um, and, and like, I'm trying to think like, uh, for example, like if I bump a deer, I will often run at it. <laughs> like, so I'll bump it. These are also things that my uncle taught me. And, you know, a deer, as many of you know, will oftentimes run a hundred yards or so. So what was it? two, three years ago. Is that right? Anyways, a few years ago, uh, I was walking, you know, through the woods doing this. And all of a sudden, you know, sometimes these bucks just materialize and you're like, they're almost right in front of you in the open hardwoods. And you're like, how did you even get here? Yeah. And so that happened. And this buck just starts, it wasn't, I mean, it didn't blow out of the country, but it started like loping, you know, out. And I just started jogging right behind it. And, you know, I'll jog about 50, hundred yards and I'll just stop. And I did that. The deer, I stopped and I was still watching it kind of loping. It stopped and I was like 60 yards from it, shot it. So, <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. So, um, so I do a lot of unconventional things like that. I'll move a lot. Like say I'm sitting, like if I see a deer, you know, say go up through a gap and I think if I sprint up to that gap, I'm, you know, I'll do all that stuff. Like, because I don't you, you're like, thinking that you might be able to get up there before he's too far out yeah, of there. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll do, I mean, and I'm not saying that stuff always works, but that's generally how I'm thinking. I'm very mobile. I may sit, but, you know, I'm just, I kind of feel like we were just talking about, you were saying being like a deer. Like, I feel like it's a very active style of, of hunting and it, I, I love it too. I think it's really fun and don't get me wrong. It's cost me some deer, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. So, but, um, but, but, yeah, I don't but, know going but on. so can picking spots and just sitting your life away too. So, I mean, I just, I, you know, one of the reasons that I like to bring these things up is I'm a, I'm a high energy, um, just like a high energy, low patience kid. I got all kinds of things going on. And I know there's a bunch of other people out there that are like that too, you know, so I'm not the only one. And, you know, for somebody else, it may be 
you know, going and sitting in the woods is like what you want to get out of the experience. But like for me recently, I've realized why I'm so drawn to the act of hunting is it's replaced sports for me. Like if I'm active hunting, it, it can feel kind of like playing a sport. You know, you just, when you, when you're, when you hit your groove, you know, at bat, you know, you're just like on a hitting streak and you're just feeling good. You're super confident and that, you know, that that's going for you. It's similar to when you're, when you're moving well through the woods, you just feel like you're on a good streak. Everything just feels like, you don't. it's all instinct. You don't have to think about it too much. Or if you're, you know, playing basketball and you're just, you know, making, you're just scoring left and right and you're, you know, passing to your buddies and they're scoring. It's like, it's all that same feel. I've just translated that into hunting. And, and the only way I get that is this active hunting. So that for me is kind of why. And I know that it's not for everybody. And I know that it definitely allows for plenty of mistakes and plenty of new mistakes that I've never even dreamed up. But like, I don't know that I, I guess I like, it's also helped me learn more about deer and hunting as well. I just feel like by attempting that stuff, at least you learn, well, did it work or did it not? You know, like, hell, he just went over the saddle. Like I'm going to bust it up there and see if I can catch up with him. It's like, mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't work, you know, ever you try it five times it doesn't work and you don't do it anymore or you do it once and it works and you're like well you know like i don't know i just really enjoy those unconventional things because i feel too that there's this like rule book and there's this like people that enjoy this style of hunting get looked down upon a lot where it's like you're doing it wrong it's like well i mean that's all relative i suppose mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I support any type of hunting, however people want to do it. Yeah. If, want to, if it's legal and they want to put out a feeder and sit in a stand and more power to them, I think it's great. So, yeah. but I want to do it my way too. So, yeah. and I also don't want people to think that I don't sit. I do a fair amount of sitting as well. I would say, you know, it's probably close to, you know, 50, 50 or 40, 60, you know, with, you know, sitting, but even my sitting is not the same. Like I'll, I'll sit somewhere and then I'll often, you know, take that tree seat, throw it on my back and go sit a hundred yards away or go down to this Creek for some reason, whatever that reason might be. But, um, you know, and that buck that, uh, that the most recent buck I killed was, uh, you know, good example of that, like sitting and moving and, um, and, can you and, actually, so what I was going to ask next is just tell me some, as many or as few and as many details as you want of just some of your favorite hunts. The most recent one is a great, is a great example because it sounds like that one was pretty wild, but I'd love to hear as many stories and as many details as you want to include. I'm, I'm, I would love to hear these. Yeah. So, well, I'll tell the story uh, of this one and uh, it's important to give a little context yeah. of my, of my season. Um, you know, so, I mean, I had a great season. I, um, I killed a, a bear, uh, in the Frank church wilderness of Idaho. Um, any of y'all can go out and that's, there's an article on that in the latest bear hunting magazine, uh, that just came out. So you can check that out there, but I, I flew into the Frank church in Idaho, killed a bear, killed the bear in Georgia. 
uh, I took my daughter um, and, and she got her first deer. Uh, you know, I shot another doe. So, I mean, I had a great season, but, uh, and, and I should say I did shoot a buck. You can shoot two bucks in Georgia. You can actually shoot a lot more than two. There's a lot of ways to get bonus deer, but you get two main tags. So I shot a buck in South Georgia and some of these big swamps. Um, and then I came back to the mountains and I've been hunting the mountains for, uh, probably 50 days. Uh, that's important. Another important thing for, you know, I, I said, I, deer hunting is a marathon and I try to hunt as much as I can. And I catch trouble for that. I'm sure you guys catch trouble <laughs> yeah. for that. But the truth is I also do that while being the CEO of a company, I do that while raising two kids and while uh, serving on the boards of nonprofits and, and doing all of these things. Um, and the, I'm going on a tangent now, but, um, but uh, I, I'm able to do that one, I live, uh, I live in the national forest. I can walk out my back door onto public land and I'm hunting. That's awesome. Um, and then the whole area around me is public land. So it's just, I, I, and so I often say hunt for two hours uh, some days and then I'm in the office, you know, turkey season, I'll hunt every single day Yeah. and I'm in the office by 10 o'clock. Some days I'll stay out all day or I'll just go for the afternoon, but I can very effectively based on where I live and how I live. Uh, do that. So, uh, I was in the mountains this year hunting, you know, I hunted about 50 days and I had, uh, I had three bucks that I knew about, including one, which was the largest buck shot in the County, a really, really nice deer antler wise. And, uh, and all three of those, uh, were killed by somebody else. And, uh, I either saw the deer uh, you know, once it was dead, saw pictures of it, saw evidence of it, but all those deer were killed. Um, and then I, there's kind of this special hunt, one of these bonus hunts up here in the mountains that I really enjoy in a particular place. And I ended up, uh, doing everything, uh, exactly right. The deer finally did it right for a day. This was one where I actually sat in one place because I knew this buck pocket had been hunting for years. There's this one prior trail, and I knew there was a deer in there, uh, a good quality, mature buck. And so I was sitting in one place, Dondle Dark, four days in a row. And the fourth day, a doe comes over the hill, the little ridge in front of me. And then I start hearing grunting and a really nice mountain buck comes over. Uh, long story short, I, I missed it. I just flat out. I knew the minute I squeezed the trigger, I was like, oh, it was heartbreaking. But <laughs> so that that's a little backdrop. I have I had a great season. I got, you know, a Western adventure, you know, my daughter's first deer, shot a nice buck in South Georgia. But my mountain hunting hadn't gone so well. And so I was up to uh my la what was gonna be my last day to hunt. It's actually the last day you can legally hunt on uh, public land in the national forest. And so, uh, I decided, uh, I was going to do something a little bit different. I was on another kind of nice pocket of buck sign, uh, that I was hunting now. Um, but we're also a month after the rut <laughs> and, you know, when you get to that time period here, I mean, talk about being hard to kill a deer in the open hardwoods next to impossible. I mean, they're probably coming out at night making that sign, but they are in that rhododendron or on a terrain feature where they have an advantage 
that's so significant. So, I, I mean, I hunted for a long time over the last month, kind of post rut and, uh, you know, no luck. So the last day I decide I'm going to do something completely different. I'll go into rhododendron thickets and I'll hunt them. But typically what I'm doing is I'll go into the thicket and I'm looking for maybe a 10, 20 acre kind of like hole in the middle of it, or like some lane that goes down mm -hmm. the chute of a mountain and I'll sit and I'll watch that or, but you know, uh, but I, I rarely like go into it and sit in the heart of, of the thicket. And so I was like my last day, you know, I'm, I'm just going to go do it. And so I ended up, uh, ended up going up this mountain, uh, you know, and, you know, kind of looking at sign along the way, uh, I knew, I knew there was, uh, like I said, I knew there was a big deer in here and, uh, and I started to find that a couple of the scrapes, even though we're a month, month post drought, a couple of the scrapes had been freshened up in the last couple of days. That got me a little excited. And so I went up to the, to the, this ridge. And I was kind of where this secondary ridge off a of main ridge goes down to a big valley. And I was just, I was going up the main, we'll call it like the foot of the ridge, the backbone of that secondary ridge. And I stopped just below an area where it flattened out. And I sat in the rhododendron. I had, I had a, a one trail, kind of the main trail on top of the ridge was, uh, if a deer came down that and the leaves were wet, um, so I probably wouldn't have heard it, but if a deer came down, it would have been 10 yards from me when I first saw it. And then I had another trail that kind of came around the side of the ridge and onto the main uh, spine. And that one I could see about 30 yards. And then I could see down the steep slope, uh, still in the rhododendron, but about 50 yards. Um, and I didn't know if there were any trails or anything of that nature down there. That's the other thing I mentioned. These mountain deer love steep. They really like steep, steeper the slope, the better. And so I sat there for maybe half an hour and this is just an afternoon hunt. And, and then I, I just, I don't know something about it. I'm sure you get these feelings sometimes too. If you end up sitting in a place, I could just, it just didn't feel right. And so I decided I was going to go up. There was a little, it, it was still in the heart of the rhododendron thicket, but there was just this little gap in the Ridge, a couple hundred yards ahead of me. And so I decided that I was going to go, move up there and so i start i'm doing this slow walking we're talking about mm -hmm. you know acting like a deer i end up getting about 20 yards from a doe who was bedded only 50 yards from where i was sitting and so i'm just coming over the crest on the top of the ridge you know acting like a deer i end up getting about 20 yards from her she looks at me and, you know, just kind of lopes off, didn't blow or anything. And then, so I start moving down the ridge to this little gap feature and I just about get there and I saw something that looked like a stump through the rhododendron. It's hard to see through the rhododendron. It's so thick through the trunks. And so, um, throw up my binos and, uh, oh, it's just a, it's just a stump. And then all of a sudden a doe steps out right in front of that. It's not what I was looking at, but she steps out. She sees me, but she's not terribly bothered. She kind of uh, walks around me, walks 20 yards from me, and eventually goes down the mountain as well. And to see two deer on a hunt here is a big deal. Like you can, and I'm not exaggerating, there are very few deer here. You can be in places where there are deer, and, and you have to expect four, five, six days of seeing nothing. 
It's it's really like that. And so so that was pretty exciting. And and I was going to go check out that gap, maybe stay there for 20 minutes. And then I was going to move on and keep doing that. But I just decided those are so rare to find. I saw those scrapes being worked. I'm about a month out from the peak of the main rut. I decided I was going to sit right there. And so I go into this rhododendron and I just set up and I mean, it's just walls of rhododendron all around me, but the leaf, there's a canopy above me. So it's just trunks. And, uh, I was, I was sitting there. Um, <clears throat> I wasn't calling. We didn't talk about it, but if I sit, sometimes I do some, some almost like blind calling, mm-hmm. not, usually nothing too aggressive, but, um, yeah. And I was sitting there and 15 minutes before the last 15 minutes of 50 days of mountain hunting, you know, this big old mature buck just comes, uh, just comes walking through that rhododendron thicket. And I can just see flashes of it because it's so quick. Uh, it's so thick, excuse me. And, uh, then eventually the, uh, the buck gets, uh, it was probably 10, maybe 15 yards from me before I could get a good shot. So I just had this giant rack coming towards me and then he stopped not because of me. And he kind of actually turned broadside 10 yards from me and just started browsing on something. And, and I shot him and it was quite an adventure uh, getting him out, but that was, it, yeah, it was just amazing to me because it was so late in the season. I've actually never killed a mountain buck in January. Really? So, uh, yeah. The latest I'd killed before that, I think was December 23rd. That's so cool. most of the mountain bucks that you, you'll kill here will be around the rut because they're so hard kind of like, so few of them so hard to find outside the rut probably like thanksgiving first week of december would probably be like the time you, if a guy could just be living out there that's when you'd be doing it exactly yeah, yeah these big bucks that live in the rhododendron they will come out and move around the landscape so and i love that i love that last week in november like you mentioned i mean mm-hmm. i wouldn't call it peak ruts the week 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 and a half before but i love this if i had one week to hunt that's when i'd hunt honestly i like late november like even in the areas that most people say first week of november my favorites a good two weeks even after that or 10 days about 10 days yeah if i had to pick one day to hunt a midwestern deer november 17th november 18th i shot a buck in minnesota in november 18th this year it's like yeah that's that's when a lot of that and I like I personally like to hunt a lockdown buck, like mm-hmm. which if you're if you're hunting in um you know in stuff that's more less visibility it's not as fun but if I'm in an area that's well I shouldn't say it's not as fun it's it's awesome if you find it no matter where you're at in the country and no matter how it happens if you find a buck with a doe that's to me, that's like literally the most ideal situation ever. And no matter how you find them, even if you bump them, but it's like that time frame when they're with, with the does, if you can get visual stuff, it's like, there's really no more fun thing to do to me than because they're just so much different. Like they literally act like a completely different animal when they've got that doe. And it's so rare, you know, you just don't get it. Honestly, you don't get it every season necessarily but yeah i i guess uh i would be real curious to hear another one of your stories of the unconventional style Mm -hmm. maybe one where you like 
don't know, feel like it was something real unique that you did to, to get him. Okay. Well, I'll mix a little, um, I'll mix a little like the Northeastern heritage with the, uh, you know, hunting with the Southeast here. And, um, which, which by the way, Chris, I feel like I'm sitting here talking. I realize that we've been talking for a while. I feel like I could probably just keep asking you tons of questions. <laughs> so we should probably just do another one sooner than later. Cause I'm like, like, I feel like it's, it's, there's just so many questions and, and like little details that I feel like I want to pick your brain about as well. So this, yeah. you know, we, we should could, do one on bow hunting bears. Yeah, honestly, it's, it'd be super fun. If it's the style we're talking about that it's, it's a lot of fun, but anyways, that's another day. Um, yeah. So I'll tell you that I'll tell you this one story and then we can, we can you know, however you want to, we can begin to wrap it up. But um, so I actually was up in the Northeast uh, hunting. I, most years I, I still go up there and, and try to do some snow tracking. And I was in Vermont and I had, you know, snow tracking for four or five days. And I ended up, uh, you know, tracking a, a nice buck and, and shooting and hitting a sapling in front of them. And, uh, which, you know, the shooting's very hard in those situations. Oh, yeah. you know, so, um, but anyway, so do you, hey, do you use the old 7,600? I use, I mostly use, uh, lever guns. Like I like Marlins, yeah. uh, and I do have a mountain rifle that I use out West. And actually I use that most of this year, uh, in the Southeast because I can't get ammo for my, mm. <laughs> for my, uh, Marlin. But anyway, so I'm in the Northeast, uh, hit that tree. And then I come back, uh, to the South and, uh, and by chance, there's snow and it's, so it's probably what last week in November there's snow. And so, uh, I, I park my truck in this area where, where I know there's uh, you know, nice buck from, you know, scouting I'd done and, and I go up in and I don't, I don't go a hundred yards and, um, and I end up seeing a really nice buck track coming back down through and it's it's fairly fresh and i just spent four days in the northeast <laughs> buck tracking and this is the first time i've been, ever been able to track in in the southeast so anyways i go to follow this buck follow it down through a creek bed and i don't go 150 yards and it was kind of like that other deer i was telling you about we're like it really surprised me how close I was to the deer before I noticed it. This deer is like 20 yards from me. It's a wide 10 point. It's got perfectly symmetrical, double 10 inch brow tines. And, and it, it just like does one like hop and is standing 25 yards broadside in front of me. I throw up my gun uh, and it was raining out and that had screwed me up. Uh, a week or two back on another deer. And so I had a cover on my scope and my plan was if I got into a deer, I would just whip it off, but I didn't expect to all of a sudden be 20 yards from a deer. <laughs> so anyways, I throw the gun up and this scope's covered, go to pull the scope cover off. By the time I do that, he's, he's gone. And so, I mean, I'm demoralized. You just missed a deer in Vermont on the snow track, just missed a deer uh, or didn't miss, but missed really your opportunity. <laughs> yeah. That was all me. I, yeah. I really screwed up on this deer. So then I, uh, I've got probably it's raining 
And that's why I had the scope cover on. So I probably had a day or two left before the snow was going to be gone. And so, um, I had to, I left and then I uh, came back the next day, but there was something to do with work. I couldn't come in until, I don't know, midday or something. And so, um, I go in and, uh, actually I'm sorry, this is not the day I couldn't go till midday, but I go in in the morning, the next morning and I find the buck's track again. He's in the same area, but now he's leaving this area that's say a hundred yards from, uh, you know, into the national forest and he's going way up into this like really high peaks mountain region and the snow's melting and I follow him for a while. But what it was is I had to come back uh, for a work related thing. So I couldn't keep following mm. him, but I knew he went up into these high peaks, um, you know, but deer move. I mean, he could have been back down there the next day, but anyways, the next day I decided I'm going up, I'm going to go up high and uh, I, I make it up to the top of the ridge and I'm doing exactly like we talked about. It's not real loud. The leaves are still kind of wet, but the snow was gone and, you know, it was a little bit of noise in the woods. So I was kind of walking, you know, walking like a deer making, uh, you know, kind of soft grunts. And then uh, just by chance, I'm on this one big peak of multiple big peaks and I'm just going up to there to explore because I knew he went up there. Uh, the day before and i'm i'm walking along this this lead ridge kind of off to the side of it and all of a sudden you know i'm grunting lightly doing my cadence walk and all of a sudden same thing this deer did it to me twice i realize the deer is like maybe 20 yards below me on the ridge just walking towards me doesn't even see me and i'm walking towards it grunting and and it ends up walking. It's about 20 yards below me. And, you know, I, I make a noise to try to stop it. And, uh, I don't have a great shot on the deer. I could, I could either shoot it in the neck, the back, you know, basically it stopped with a tree covering, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's lungs and all of that. But I had a little bit of the front of, I thought I could maybe get the lungs on the front. In hindsight, I should have saw it, shot it in the neck. Um, and so then I ended up, uh, I ended up, but I ended up deciding to try to clip the front of the lungs. Boom. I hit the deer, deer runs off. And I mean, there is a serious blood trail. I'm following the blood trail and I won't go into it in too depth and too much depth, but it took me, um, over six hours tracking this deer and it looked, it was really good blood. It started going up ridges, uh, pretty big ridges. And, and I was concerned, but there was still a lot of blood. Um, but to make a long story short, I had to follow this deer Jeez. for, um, over six hours and over four miles somewhere in that ballpark. Jeez. I can't remember exactly what through multiple mountains and what it did is it was up in those high peaks I was talking about. And then it worked its way down and over multiple ridges all the way back into the valley floor where I'd seen it the day before. It actually walked on the same trail where I put my gun up on it the, the day before. <laughs> and, and, uh, or two days before or whatever that was. And so I, in a couple places, it got to the point of just pin drops of blood. And I mean, there were a couple times where I didn't have blood. I was just following the most likely trail. Um, uh, yeah, I ended up, it came all the way down into the valley where it came down towards a road. 
and I ended up bumping it uh, off off and across this road and went down into this river bottom. And uh, I go down to the river bottom. It's it's pretty thick area actually, which is rare and and it's bleeding again good because it when it crossed the road it had to make a big jump and. I'm following it and it gets to the point where like these just drops of blood are turning to nothing. And I'm just in there and I'm finally exhausted. I sit down. I remember I'm sitting against a tree. You know, I've had what happened to me in Vermont. I told you about, mm-hmm. and, and I actually had two other buck mistakes that year. And I was just devastated. And and I was sitting there listening to this Creek next to me, you know, probably 30 yards, 40 yards from me. And I was like, I better go get up and look in that creek and I, I get up and I walk over to this creek and I look down it and just a hundred yards down the creek, I just see this big rack sticking out of the water and ended up, ended up getting them. Yeah. I've had great pictures of the deer. I, I took a picture right then of the deer. You just see this giant rack sticking out of the water. So he just went and tried to cross. Do you think he tried to cross and that was just too much for him? And it like he drowned or do you think he, what do you think I, happened there? I don't know, or or if so, I I should back up. I said I bumped him across the road. I did not bump him. There's like one road. It's kind of like back in the national forest, but there's one little house back in, mm-hmm. and he came down to that house when he got out of the high peaks, and he was actually bedded on this little thing above the house. And people coming to work on the house scared him. So I don't know exactly how long before I got there, he crossed that road. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it could have been an hour, two hours. Um, so I'm not sure. I don't know if he went to water, like people say deer mm-hmm. do when they're injured, um, or if he just was crossing that Creek and that was finally it. I, I don't know, That's but I will, crazy. I can tell you, I hit him kind of went through like that, that like just in front of that front leg mm-hmm. kind of brisket and, and clipped one of the lungs clipped mm-hmm. it pretty good and that's the only reason it bled well is because there were two holes but they were both kind of pointing down and so um yeah i was able to get that deer that's was, insane so like yeah. basically you basically hit it just just far or just a, not quite enough forward to like just graze him but enough just to hit enough to keep him bleeding and and possibly yeah that's i mean that's interesting because i hit a i hit a lung and it killed him but it was kind of on the front side you know the very kind of bottom front corner of where you could hit a lung so which is also in my opinion i guess and i don't know this is again another can of worms but i guess i don't i guess growing up where I did in Ohio and then I lived in Iowa after that I never had the opportunity to hunt with a like a high power rifle we only hunted with muzzleloaders shotguns when I was a kid and then just recently in those states they've uh, allowed you to shoot like a pistol cartridge like a straight wall cartridge so I have a now I have a 450 Bushmaster that I hunt with but I've never actually still to this day hunted even though I've hunted in places where you legally can, I've never hunted with like a 30 out six. I'd like to change that. I mean, I brought up the 7,600 because I'm, I'm super fascinated in that pump action, little light gun. So if anybody listening, you know, has one for sale, pretty hard to find right now. <laughs> but anyway, 
I think the only way with a gun that you could like, I shouldn't say the only way, the, the, like one of the ways that a deer can take a bullet and keep going is that one long shot. It's like the one, because if you hit them center of the body, even if it's like a liver or something, generally it hits them so hard that they want to just go lay down. But on the other hand, if you hit too far forward and only clip one lung, it can definitely, a lot of times, a lot of times if you stick with it, in your case, longer than normal, it seems like people have still good luck getting them, catching up with them, but it's like that one thing that could really go wrong quickly is a one long shot, especially with like a muzzleloader or something too. It seems like those would get real tricky, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. In hindsight, I would have now, that was probably, I don't know, six years ago, seven years ago. In hindsight now, I probably would have brought a dog out on that mm-hmm. one. Although I would say it was so far, like to first of all, get the dog to the first blood would have been a lot of work. And then it was the type of trail that somebody might have taken their dog off of. And mm-hmm. so I'm glad I kept following it. Like, yeah. I, you know, so that's cool. Anyways. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, I have a, a lot of stories like that. We could go on all night, but, um, but yeah, I love hunting in the mountains. Yeah. It's hard though. I'm not necessarily saying everybody should come do it. You have to really, you know, it takes a lot of patience. It's, it takes a lot of time and it's, it's not high productivity. You have to be fine not seeing deer for days. Um, so it, yeah, it takes, and I'm not saying it's better or worse or any type of person who likes to do whatever type of hunting is better or worse, but you, you know, it's not a destination deer hunting place. Don't come here unless you really want adventure and really hard hunting. Yeah. And I, I also think too, it just probably speaks to other locals in that area where it's like, Hey, this is my life. This is what I have to to, to deal with. And, you know, I, I guess again, like I mentioned earlier, it's just important to me to, to, for one experience, as well as talk to people that have a lot of time and effort, you know, over the years put into that stuff, because I think that you can apply the things that you certainly, I guess this is maybe like a final question. Would you say that by hunting those areas, those mountain areas, when you go to a place that is kind of scaled down or is maybe in southern Georgia or a different type of habitat and flat ground, do you feel like it helps you, I guess, be even better in those areas as well? Even though they're totally different, do you feel that it helps you like, just be a more well-rounded hunter? Yeah, I think so. For example, you know, I like to hunt South Georgia a lot. And down there, I really focus on like, I still consider big woods, like, but like big wood swamps. Yep. We're talking like swamps on these big rivers that just go for miles in every direction. Uh, so that's, I like to hunt those areas quite a bit. And the deer densities are much, much higher. The deer in general, antler wise, are, you know, in general, are bigger. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do. I see a lot more deer. But just the way I think about the woods, I think if I only hunted there and I'd moved to Georgia and that's where I focused, I'd probably be, you know, hunting from a tree stand, you know, trying to find some type of wildlife opening or food plot sitting there. Um, And not that those can't be productive or they're not fun things to do, but, but I hunt 
down there a lot like I hunt up here. I mean, there are big differences, but yeah, no, I think it's, I think it's made me better. It's made me a lot more patient. Uh, like I said, I, it goes, you can go days without seeing a deer and that's perfectly normal. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm probably not answering that question well, but in general, I, I would think so. I thought, I mean, I think you answered it plenty well. I think it's, uh, it's just for, for me just in, and again, this isn't, this isn't exactly the same by any means, but just hunting timber, big timber and just exploring that more. It certainly makes me appreciate, uh, the simplicity of like hard edges in flat ground, if that makes sense, you know, where you're dealing with like, <laughs> for example, in flat ground, you can still have open hardwoods, but when there's that hard edge of like cattails or something, it's like, well, that's probably where they're, I mean, they're probably just going to be right there. There's no point. And like, I feel like it just speeds up the process of going to the X, I guess f for me, that's the one thing for sure. When you scale everything down versus having all of this habitat and terrain that generally looks the same, you know, you're looking at the map and you're like, man, I could go here. I could go here. I could go here. I could go here. Now, all of a sudden you're looking at this flat stuff where there's like, you know, maybe ag or, you know, just areas that you can kind of cross off quicker where you can see a transition line more obvious. It's just like, well, that's where, that's where I'm going. <laughs> it, it, it definitely helped speed that up for me, I would say. But yeah. anyway, all right, Chris. Well, Hey, thanks for taking the time. I know it's been a long time. I know you also said you've been doing some other podcasts today, so I appreciate you sticking it out and talking with me, man. I've really enjoyed it and I can't wait to talk more in the future. Yeah, let's do it. I uh, enjoyed it as well. I uh, enjoy pretty much everything you guys do. So uh, Thank you. keep doing what you're doing. Thank you.